0: CHAPTER NINE OF THE ALTAR OF THE DEAD BY HENRY JAMES. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY Doraline Kaplan. And yet this was no solution, especially after he had talked again to his friend of all it had been his plan she should finally do for him. He had talked in the other days, and she had responded with a frankness qualified only by a courteous reluctance, a reluctance that touched him to linger on the question of his death. She had then practically accepted the charge, suffered him to feel he could depend upon her to be the eventual guardian of his shrine, and it was in the name of what had so passed between them that he appealed to her not to forsake him in his age. She listened at present with shining coldness and all her habitual forbearance to insist on her terms. Her deprecation was even still tenderer would express the compassion of her own sense that he was abandoned her terms however remained the same and scarcely the less audible for not being uttered though he was sure that secretly even more than he she felt bereft of the satisfaction his solemn trust was to have provided her they both missed the rich future but she missed it most because after all it was to have been entirely hers and it was her acceptance of the loss that gave him the full measure of her preference for the thought of Acton Haig over any other thought whatever. He had humor enough to laugh rather grimly when he said to himself,
1: Why the deuce does she like him so much more than she likes me?
0: The reasons being really so conceivable. But even his faculty of analysis left the irritation standing, and this irritation proved perhaps the greatest misfortune that had ever overtaken him. There had been nothing yet that made him so much want to give up. He had, of course, by this time well reached the age of renouncement, but it had not hitherto been vivid to him that it was time to give up everything. Practically, at the end of six months, he had renounced the friendship once so charming and comforting. His privation had two faces, and the face it had turned to him on the occasion of his last attempt to cultivate that friendship was the one he could look at least. This was the privation he inflicted. The other was the privation he bore. The condition she never phrased he used to murmur to himself in solitude. One more, one more, only just one. Certainly he was going down. He often felt it when he caught himself over his work staring at vacancy and giving voice to that inanity. There was proof enough besides in his being so weak and so ill. His irritation took the form of melancholy, and his melancholy that of the conviction that his health had quite failed. His altar, moreover, had ceased to exist. His chapel, in his dreams, was a great dark cavern. All the lights had gone out. All his dead had died again. He couldn't exactly see at first how it had been in the power of his late companion to extinguish them, since it was neither for her nor by her that they had been called into being. Then he understood that it was essentially in his own soul the revival had taken place, and that in the air of this soul they were now unable to breathe. The candles might mechanically burn, but each of them had lost its luster. The church had become a void. It was his presence, her presence, their common presence, that had made the indispensable medium. If anything was wrong, everything was. Her silence spoiled the tune. Then, when three months were gone, he felt so lonely that he went back, reflecting that as they had been his best society for years, his dead perhaps wouldn't let him forsake them without doing something more for him. They stood there, as he had left them, in their tall radiance, the bright cluster that had already made him, on occasions when he was willing to compare small things with great, liken them to a group of sea lights on the edge of the ocean of life. It was a relief to him after a while as he sat there to feel they had still a virtue. He was more and more easily tired, and he always drove now. The action of his heart was weak and gave him none of the reassurance conferred by the action of his fancy. Nonetheless, he returned yet again, returned several times, and finally, during six months, haunted the place with a renewal of frequency and a strain of impatience. In winter the church was unwarmed and exposure to cold forbidden him, but the glow of his shrine was an influence in which he could almost bask. He sat and wondered to what he had reduced his absent associate and what she now did with the hours of her absence. There were other churches. There were other altars. There were other candles. In one way or another her piety would still operate. He couldn't absolutely have deprived her of her rights. So he argued but without contentment, for he well enough knew there was no other such rare semblance of the mountain of light she had once mentioned to him as the satisfaction of her need. As this semblance again gradually grew great to him, and his pious practice more regular, he found a sharper and sharper pang in the imagination of her darkness, for never so much as in these weeks had his rites been real, Never had his gathered company seemed so to respond and even to invite. He lost himself in the large luster, which was more and more what he had from the first wished it to be, as dazzling as the vision of heaven in the mind of a child. He wandered in the fields of light. He passed among the tall tapers from tier to tier, from fire to fire, from name to name from the white intensity of one clear emblem of one saved soul to another. It was in the quiet sense of having saved his souls that his deep, strange instinct rejoiced. This was no dim theological rescue, no boon of a contingent world. They were saved better than faith or works could save them, saved for the warm world they had shrunk from dying to, for actuality, for continuity. THE CERTAINTY OF HUMAN REMEMBRANCE. BY THIS TIME HE HAD SURVIVED ALL HIS FRIENDS. THE LAST STRAIGHT FLAME WAS THREE YEARS OLD. THERE WAS NO ONE TO ADD TO THE LIST. OVER AND OVER HE CALLED HIS ROLE, AND IT APPEARED TO HIM COMPACT AND COMPLETE. WHERE SHOULD HE PUT IN ANOTHER? WHERE, IF THERE WERE NO OTHER OBJECTION, WOULD IT STAND IN ITS PLACE IN THE RANK? HE REFLECTED WITH A WANT OF SINCERITY OF WHICH HE WAS QUITE CONSCIOUS, that it would be difficult to determine that place. More and more, besides, face to face with his little legion over endless histories, handling the empty shells and playing with the silence, more and more he could see that he had never introduced an alien. He had had his great companions, his indulgences. There were cases in which they had been immense. But what had his devotion, after all, been if it hadn't been at the bottom, a respect. He was, however, himself surprised at his stiffness. By the end of the winter, the responsibility of it was what was uppermost in his thoughts. The refrain had grown old to them, that plea for just one more. There came a day when, for simple exhaustion, his symmetry should demand just one, he was ready so far to meet symmetry. Symmetry was harmony, and the idea of harmony began to haunt him. He said to himself that harmony was, of course, everything. He took in fancy his composition to pieces, redistributing it into other lines, making other juxtapositions and contrasts. He shifted this and that candle. He made the spaces different. He effaced the disfigurement of a possible gap. There were subtle and complex relations— a scheme of cross-reference and moments in which he seemed to catch a glimpse of the void so sensible to the woman who wandered in exile or sat where he had seen her with the portrait of Acton Haig. Finally, in this way, he arrived at a conception of the total, the ideal, which left a clear opportunity for just another figure.
1: Just one more to round it off. Just one more. Just one,
0: continued to hum in his head. There was a strange confusion in the thought, for he felt the day to be near when he too should be one of the others. What in this event would the others matter to him, since they only matter to the living? Even as one of the dead, what would his altar matter to him, since his particular dream of keeping it up had melted away? What had harmony to do with the case if his lights were all to be quenched? What he had hoped for was an instituted thing. He might perpetuate it on some other pretext, but his special meaning would have dropped. This meaning was to have lasted with the life of the one other person who understood it. In March he had an illness during which he spent a fortnight in bed, and when he revived a little he was told of two things that had happened. One was that a lady whose name was not known to the servants, she left none, had been three times to ask about him. The other was that in his sleep and on an occasion when his mind evidently wandered, he was heard to murmur again and again,
1: Just one more, just one.
0: As soon as he found himself able to go out, and before the doctor in attendance had pronounced him so, he drove to see the lady who had come to ask about him. She was not at home, but this gave him the opportunity, before his strength should fail again, to take his way to the church. He entered it alone. He had declined in a happy manner he possessed of being able to decline effectively the company of his servant or of a nurse. He knew now perfectly what these good people thought. They had discovered his clandestine connection, the magnet that had drawn him for so many years, and doubtless attached a significance of their own to the odd words they had repeated to him. The nameless lady was the clandestine connection. A fact nothing could have made clearer than his indecent haste to rejoin her. He sank on his knees before his altar while his head fell over on his hands. His weakness, his life's weariness overtook him. It seemed to him he had come for the great surrender. At first he asked himself how he should get away. Then, with a failing belief in the power, the very desire to move gradually left him. He had come as he always came to lose himself. The fields of life were still there to stray in, only this time, in straying, he would never come back. He had given himself to his dead, and it was good. This time his dead would keep him. He couldn't rise from his knees. He believed he should never rise again. All he could do was to lift his face and fix his eyes on his lights. They looked unusually strangely splendid, but the one that always drew him most had an unprecedented luster. It was the central voice of the choir, the glowing heart of the brightness, and on this occasion it seemed to expand, to spread great wings of flame. The whole altar flared, dazzling and blinding, but the source of the vast radiance burned clearer than the rest, gathering itself into form, and the form was human beauty and human charity, was the far-off face of Mary Antrim. She smiled at him from the glory of heaven. She brought the glory down with her to take him. He bowed his head in submission, and at the same moment another wave rolled over him. Was it the quickening of joy to pain? In the midst of his joy, at any rate, he felt his buried face grow hot as with some communicated knowledge that had the force of a reproach. It suddenly made him contrast that very rapture with the bliss he had refused to another. This breath of the passion immortal was all that other had asked. The descent of Mary Antrim opened his spirit with a great, compunctious throb for the descent of Acton Hague. It was as if Stransom had read what her eyes said to him. After a moment, He looked round in a despair that made him feel as if the source of life were ebbing. The church had been empty. He was alone. But he wanted to have something done to make a last appeal. This idea gave him strength for an effort. He rose to his feet with a movement that made him turn, supporting himself by the back of a bench. Behind him was a prostrate figure, a figure he had seen before, a woman in deep mourning, bowed in grief or in prayer. He had seen her in other days, the first time of his entrance there, and he now slightly wavered, looking at her again, till she seemed aware he had noticed her. She raised her head and met his eyes. The partner of his long worship had come back. She looked across at him an instant, with a face wondering and scared. He saw he had made her afraid, then quickly rising, she came straight to him, with both hands out.
1: Then you could come. God sent you.
0: He murmured with a happy smile. You're very ill. You shouldn't be here, she urged in anxious reply.
1: God sent me too, I think. I was ill when I came, but the sight of you does wonders.
0: He held her hands, which steadied and quickened him.
1: I've something to tell you.
0: Don't tell me, she tenderly pleaded. Let me tell you this afternoon by a miracle the sweetest of miracles the sense of our difference left me i was out i was near thinking wandering alone when on the spot something changed in my heart it's my confession there it is to come back to come back on the instant the idea gave me wings it was as if i suddenly saw something as if it all became possible I could come for what you yourself came for. That was enough. So here I am. It's not for my own. That's over. But I'm here for them. And breathless, infinitely relieved by her low, precipitate explanation, she looked with eyes that reflected all its splendor at the magnificence of their altar.
1: They're here for you, Stransom said. They're present tonight as they've never been. They speak for you, don't you see? In a passion of light, they sing out like a choir of angels. Don't you hear what they say? They offer the very thing you asked of me.
0: Don't talk of it. Don't think of it. Forget it. She spoke in a hushed supplication, and while the alarm deepened in her eyes, she disengaged one of her hands and passed an arm round him to support him better, to help him to sink into a seat. He let himself go, resting on her, He dropped upon the bench, and she fell on her knees beside him, his own arm around her shoulder. So he remained an instant, staring up at his shrine.
1: They say there's a gap in the array. They say it's not full, complete. Just one more, he went on softly. Isn't that what you wanted? Yes, one more, one more.
0: Ah, no more, no more, she wailed, as with a quick new horror of it under her breath. Yes, one more, he repeated simply. Just one, and with this, his head dropped on her shoulder. She felt that in his weakness he had fainted, but alone with him in the dusky church, a great dread was on her of what might still happen. For his face had the whiteness of death. End of chapter nine. Recording by Doraline and Larry Kaplan, New York City. End of of the Altar of the Dead by Henry James.